what the fuck is society? Like, is it this group of people? Is it that group of people? It's a useful fiction, right? We're describing a group of people with a fictional term like society or collectivist or communist or whatever the term is. And you don't know who's included and excluded from that group. So you can never have like clarity of conversation. Whereas if you focus on the individual, that's very clear where the individual starts and ends. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB group.com forward slash Peter. Also today we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you're trusting somebody else. 
I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. You know why you think that? Because I see the world through freedom-colored glasses. So, I just uh, put out a show with Marty Bent. I'm more on the European uh, collectivist side of the spectrum. Uh He's more on the American individualist side. When you go into the YouTube comments, half the people agree with me. Yeah. Half the people agree with Marty. Actually, there's a few in the middle saying, great discussion, thanks for having it. Right. Which is a complete reflection of society right now. Yes. So... It's such, it's so complicated because in a sense, we do have to be, I say this very delicately, collectivists in a way, right? We have to get on together. We have to have relations with one another that work. But the problem I think, and a lot of people point to this, like like Mises and Rand, when you get into collectivism, it's an arb- it's like, where do you draw the lines? Where do you circumscribe that group? Where do you say like, this is the group? When you say something loose like society, what the fuck is society? Like, is it this group of people? Is it that group of people? It's a useful fiction, right? We're describing a group of people with a fictional term like society or collectivist or communist or whatever the term is. And you don't know who's included and excluded from that group. So you can never have like clarity of conversation. Whereas if you focus on the individual, that's very clear where the individual starts and ends. And so I think that's why to actually get groups to operate well, you need to really focus on individual liberties and rights. And that's why I just swing so hard. I know we'll disagree on this, but regulation, policy, anything that's not voluntary or anywhere, any situation where people don't have the ability to opt out because ultimately the power to say no is what keeps, what makes something voluntary. If you can't say no to it, then it's being forced upon you. I think that is, and this is where, we get into that term fiat, right? That dirty word. Doing something because an authority says so under a veiled threat of force. Like where my thinking is at with that now is like, that's like a corrosive acid on human interrelations. Like, I just don't think it works. Um, anyways, I'm just trying to go into that in my work now. It's like, I think there's serious psychological implications at the individual and collective level from trying to, tell people like this is how you have to be organized this is how this is how you raise your children by the way by fiat right do this because i said so otherwise you'll get punished i don't think you can take that and map that to adult relationships in any sustainable way i just don't think even people that want to be told what to do that needs to be voluntary right this is where i think we can kind of try and map our work to each other and what we both do because I think you, as you, you, you find what you think is the answer. And I always think about how do we get there? Mm-hmm. And what are the implications of that? And that's why I think you get to absolute liberty. Yeah. Whereas I think of the consequences of moving from where we are as a collectivist society to absolute liberty, what that means and what's going to work and what doesn't work. And what about the people who don't want it. You talk about what is society. Uh, I don't think there's any 
uh, hard definition apart from what a dictionary would tell you, but society for me is perhaps the uh, boundaries mm-hmm. within which uh, laws exist. So within the UK, you have a UK society because they're fixed by a fixed set of laws. Whereas the US, you have a US federal society, fixed set of laws, but you also have state regulations, so you have state laws. But you can also talk about society as smaller groups. Mm-hmm. So this, I think, I think, I think you can attribute it to kind of multiple definitions. Yeah, you can, but that's the danger, right? Because then you can have someone come into a position of power inside of that political hierarchy, and they can justify any action they want to take for the good of society. Yeah. Isn't that what Trudeau just did? He did. For the good and safe, whatever bullshit rhetoric he's pumping out to freeze individuals' bank accounts and blatantly violate their private property rights Mm -hmm. in broad daylight for all to see. And then he can sweep that under the moral camouflage of, oh, it's good for society and we're fixing the state or helping. Con- I don't, I didn't pay attention to his rhetoric, but that I think is the problem, right? Because you end up with this infinite scapegoat of a useful fiction that you can just paint anything. That's what Stalin did. That's what everyone did. They never did anything that was actually bad. Well, they, they never admitted to it. They never admitted to it. But That's what did. I'm saying. It was always for the good of society, always the greater good. Some appeal to a useful fiction. So th- that's the point I'm trying to make is there's a danger in that. Like we need the useful fictions to scale and organize ourselves and communicate, right? We need to talk about these different groups of people, their interests and all of that. But we have to remember that it is a fiction. All of them are fictions. The individual is real. Only the individual acts, thinks, decides, uses means and ends. If we start extrapolating individual thoughts, feelings, actions onto a group, that's when the lines get blurry and people can, you know, tyrants in particular can deceive and and confuse us. I agree. But I also recognize the challenges of building, you know, excuse me for using it, a society based on just the individual yeah. and the removal of coercion. Because I don't think you can ever remove coercion. I just think it exists either under a structure of law or a lawless structure. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I, still think it, I still think it exists uh, because men, and mainly men, let's be honest, mm-hmm. uh, are aggressive, uh, domineering, ambitious individuals. And wherever you see a breakdown in society, breakdown in law and order, you tend to see oppression, violence, rape. Oh. So if, if we're going to discuss uh, the problems in, say, democracy, let's start with democracy, and we want to move more to individualist society, we have to talk about what does that mean? Because you can look at countless examples around the world of where it's complete failure of society. And, and see, the thing is, the way I see of the reason I like democracy or Western liberal democracies, not currently, there's a lot of problems, mm. is that I think it's a leveler. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it gives the opportunity to create rules and laws and a structure for millions of people to operate under. And it is completely and utterly flawed, I get it. But I also find I can't see the world of the of the individual, the sovereign individual, that isn't one that's still governed by hierarchy. It's just a different hierarchy. And the ability to use violence against others because you control 
greater wealth or you control a greater set of arms without the rule of law, I think you would still have coercion and you could possibly even get to back to the stages of slavery and mm. other forms of coercion. And I only think, I, I know where you go with this, but that requires every person to be a good, decent person. Well, all right, number of things to unpack here. Yeah. One, I would say the first, just to put a button on the useful fiction thing. So we're talking about like the US society or UK society or the US economy versus the UK economy. Again, these are all arbitrary, useful fictions we're drawing around. A what certain do you mean by fiction? When you say the U.S. economy, where do you draw the lines around that? Like, which transaction is the U.S. economy versus uh, an international economy? Especially in the digital age, like all these bright lines we have in Keynesian economic models, like they're being increasingly blurred. Good, sure, but like, it's not a fiction. There is a there is a U.S. economy, which is the well. What do you do? All right, so it's, gross, instance, it's the gross domestic product of every person who lives within that country. Okay, so this particular show, yep. your audience is presumably somewhat international. Yeah. Okay, so like, where are you actually creating economic value? I'm, I, I probably create economic value in two places, well, multiple places, which is fine, but my revenue is on my P&L, which is recorded by a British accountant and gets reported to HMRC in the UK, so I contribute to the gross domestic product of the UK. Right. So even when you're measuring something like in a GDP terms, and this is why the Austrians are so anti-measurement everything, because mm -hmm. it's still arbitrary. You've taken an arbitrary formula, applied it to an arbitrary scope of trade and said, this is the number yeah. that represents this. But it's still, there's an element of arbitrariness that goes into it. So here's my, my general point is this. So just to say is that I'm not a fan of GDP. And the reason I'm not a right. fan of GDP is because there's that constant need for growth mm -hmm. and the constant need for growth I think distorts money. Yes, but at the at the same time, the British economy is not a fiction. It it exists. I think there's only one economy, a global economy. That's right. Okay, just like there's only one weather. Right, we can say there's U.S. weather, there's U.K. weather, but in the end, it's one complex system that's all interconnected. Yeah, but you and this can is still the break butterfly effect, right? You, you can still break it down. Yes, and it's useful to break it down. Yeah. But the actuality, the reality that we live in is that it's all continuous, it's all interconnected. I think it's useful to break it down because you I, and I- And that's why I say useful fiction. It's very useful. Very useful to describe ourselves as Republican versus Democrat or leftist versus rightist, right? There's all these uh, utilities to the fiction, right? Even words themselves, like ultimately, you and I share meaning that we assign to a certain word. That's how we communicate. Mm -hmm. But that word is not the thing we're describing, right? There's a phenomenon that's deeper and more complicated than that word. So just like the words themselves are useful fictions, we build these larger fictions. So, so is gender a useful, useful fiction? <laughs> I don't think I'm qualified for that discussion. I think it's on your list. I think there are biological realities, and I think there are social socially constructed realities. Okay. So why why can't we have 26 genders then? Go for it. Just don't coerce me to use your chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's imaginary. It's you're playing imaginary ultimately and imaginary is not to disregard it and say that there's no use at all. Clearly, like the reason humans run shit in the world is cuz we can play imaginary like no other animal, right? By the way, people listening are now going to be thinking 
Pizza Leah Thomas fan. He wants Leah Thomas competing against women. I fucking don't. I Is think that the dumb. man swimmer woman thing? Well, f- <laughs> trans female swimmer mm. who should not be competing against no. biological females. Agreed 100%. Yeah. But yeah. do what the fuck you want. Well, let people just self-organize. Yeah. If all the women want to go into a separate group and have a women-only competition that's based on actual biological reality, then let them self-organize into that. Yeah, we're but, on a we're on a tangent, by the way. Let's go, let's go back. But I, I just I just I disagree that it's a fiction. I think it's a reality, which uh, is a useful construct in certain ways and unuseful in others. Uh, but I don't think it's. Uh, Fiction, I think it's reality. Well, here we are. So we're disagreeing right now on the yeah. word fiction itself, right? Yeah. You're taking fiction, it seems to me. Dictionary, please. You're taking fiction as to mean something that's false, not real, not true. Yeah. Right? Storybook, fairy tale, whatever. Whereas I take fiction as something representational, right? We are, we are human beings existing in a complex reality that we cannot possibly deal with. So we simplify it into language, into social institutions, um, into even habits, right? We have routines and things like this. All of that simplification is done through fictionalization, useful fictions. Businesses, what's a business? It's a useful fiction. Fiction, a type of of literature that describes imaginary people and events, not real ones. But look at the second one. A thing that is invented or imagined and is not true. Hmm. It kind of says we're both right because invented or imagined well, is what you're saying. Well, I think this actually makes you look more right, but I yeah. guess I'm just taking it. Yeah, you know, but, when, but you so see why I disagree, right? Here's the thing. Here's an example that's useful from Peterson. Numbers. What, what's a number? What's one, two, three, four, five? What is that? Where is that? I don't know how to answer that. It's strange. It's a category. It's like it's, it's like a useful fiction. It's like this. Describe the color green. But think about this. It's <laughs> You can't describe color. Well, that's a different thing. But because the, now we don't know if what you call green and what I call green. We can never reconcile that, I know. Actually. Isn't that fucking amazing? Like, that's I came amazing. to that reality one, one time. It's like, you might... Like, that shirt's orange. Yeah. But it You're, might look blue to me. You might look blue. Yeah. yeah. And you might but see... I would call it orange. But there's no way of knowing that yeah. at all. Yeah. Isn't that fucking wild? But numbers are a little different because there is a way... I might be getting outside of my scope here, but let me just stick to the useful fiction nature of numbers. It's almost like the most universal useful fiction. So anything that exhibits the property of threeness, right? Being in triple triplicate form that I can see there's three distinct units of a thing, I can assign three. And that's anything in the universe. So math like is the ultimate useful fiction and then it gives us the highest resolution um, map to deal with, with reality. Again, I wouldn't call it fiction though, because fiction says it's not real, and you've it but is what, real. Where is the number? How is it real? Where is the substance of a number? I don't know how to answer that, but it but numbers are are real. Well, then you're saying socially constructed reality is real. So you're saying human imaginary play is real. I'm saying, <clears throat> I'm saying, the gross domestic product of a country is real. Real, but arbitrary. Yeah, as is math. But it's not a, it's not fiction, because fiction says it's not real. Well, we have base ten number system. Otherwise, today, right? otherwise everything is fiction. But here's the deal. So here's the punchline with Peterson's number analogy. Yeah, fiction is not not real. Fiction is hyper real. 
Like math applies to so many things. It gives us this unbelievable grip on reality. Like all of these amazing electronics flying around in airplanes, artificial lights, everything we do in the economy, right? It's based on that foundational um, grip of reality we have through mathematics. So it's extremely real, yeah. right? It is the reason we are technologi- technologically powerful, eating steak every night for dinner. I don't go out and kill the cow. I just show up at the restaurant, right? All that's built on math. So it's not real versus fake. It's, it's more nuanced than that, in my opinion. And that you, it's, it's data compression, right? Mm-hmm. The world's infinitely complex. There's a lot of shit going on. You can't possibly take it all in at any one time. So you have to reduce it into something that's manageable. And then we can communicate in those terms, whether it's math or language. And then that's what gives us this profound grip on reality that lets us outcompete every other species in the world and live luxuriously at the top of the food chain. But that, that's going to be the same whether it's your version of society or mine. Well, somewhat, but then you don't, you can't slide into the postmodernism failure of two plus two equals five. There is an objective reality to mathematics too, right? Yep. There's an axiomatic assumption and then you deduce from that. That's what math is based on. It's also what Austrian economics is based on. So if you take the axiom to be true, whatever you deduce from that is basically, it's contained in a logically coherent structure. So you can't even argue with it. People get so mad at me when I say this. It's like, the first axiom of Austrian economics, man must act. You can't really argue with that. There's no argument. There's no counter argument. How can you say man? And when you have to understand the term act, a man and women, people, use means to pursue ends. So they act with purpose. Action um, presupposes purpose, let's say. And that's what distinguishes human action from animal behavior which is presumably just instinctual. Whereas we're actually thinking through what we do, we use reason and all of these things. So, um, hmm. Is that all animals? Well, this is a whole other thing. Whales? Rothbard would say that until an animal stands up and tries to protest for its own reason and its own autonomy, that they're basically in a different category. What defines standing up for your own autonomy? Like actually, if you could imagine the cows got up and said, we've had enough of this ranching bullshit, we're ready to start our own city. That's when Rothbard would say they crossed the chasm from uh, instinctual behavior to action, purposeful behavior. Is it not more the ability to organize in groups? But does does that not also happen if you study the way, I can't remember which whales it is, but the way the whales work together Right, coordinated as a group, and all that. Yeah, to hunt. It's and, a blurry line. Yeah, and, and and we've seen videos where, uh, uh, you know, a, a group uh, like a a lion maybe is attack being attacked by a crocodile, and then a group of lions come in, like yeah. that kind of shit. But is that all instinctual? I mean, who knows? I can't put my mind in an animal and tell you. But I will say, and when I pursued this line of thought it becomes quite Darwinian in a sense. Uh Because like the reason we dominate animals and eat them is because we can. And for better or worse, that's what we do. Um, But I think that lens is also useful for looking at statism. That it too is a business that's just harvesting energy. Like the same way we harvest animal energy through ranching and all of these things. The state is harvesting human energy. 
right? That's what taxpayers are doing. They're going to work. They're working for currency. They're spinning the currency into an economy. They're adding value. And then the state is confiscating value through taxation and inflation. Um, there's a great book on this too that I've only read the beginning of it, Seeing Like a State by Frederick Scott, maybe. I forgot the other's name. But he was saying that scientific forestry was a heavy influence on the tax, tax policy of states. I think this was coming out of like Germany in the 1800s, where they were trying to figure out how to optimize crop yields on lumber. So you can't just grow it for a few years and hew it all down. And you also can't let it just run for 100 years because you don't get yield. There's like a sweet spot of when to, um, when to harvest the lumber, essentially. And a lot of it had to do with the way they were planting the trees as far as like the forest density, clearing the forest floor of detritus, all of these different modes of dealing with it. They figured out how to optimize lumber yields, basically. Well, states took notice of this in Germany, and they started to apply this to um, tax collections. So the whole premise of taxation today is to make taxpayer activities as legible as possible to the state. So they need to see you, know your identity, know all the economic transactions you're involved in, know what your balance sheet is, so they can harvest you <laughs> optimally. Um, Isn't that what a slave owner does as well? Do, do they not harvest energy? Of course. And this is, what is a human being subject to a 100% tax rate? What is that? Uh, I know where you're going with this, but where is there 100% tax rate? Anywhere there's ever been slavery. Okay. I think I thought you were alluding to something else there. But what I'm saying is, is uh, Libya. Libya has an active uh, free market for slaves right now mm -hmm. because of the breakdown. Uh, they had the complete breakdown they had in society since uh, Gaddafi was deposed and killed. Mm -hmm. um, the US has a history of slavery. Mm -hmm. The UK has a history of slavery. Yeah, we've hum humanity. Yeah, humanity yeah. has a history of slavery. Um, in in a in a society like we have with rules, yes, we have taxation, which some people say is a form of slavery. If you're paying some tax, that's because it's coercion. It's a form of slavery. But if you had no taxation and and no central government, I th there's every every chance, most a most likely scenario where we end back with some people who will have slaves. And I would argue that person has less liberty than you and I do under a democracy. Yeah, so there's a couple of things here. One would be, first is the point on effective tax rate. Like, if, you, if your effective tax rate is 100%, you are by definition a slave. This mm -hmm. is another one of those things that I don't think you can really argue about. People try to say it's a category error, you shouldn't compare them. One's like a guy in chains with no, a gun I, in his I, face. I'm with, I'm with you on that. But it's like, and this is Ayn Rand's point, if a man cannot control the product of his own labor, then he ha there are no other rights. Property rights are the foundation of all human rights. What about partial control? Well, like I, I pay 50% tax. Then you're 50% slave. But I don't think I am. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe I'm a slave. I, I believe I contribute to society. So I wrote about this in Masters and Slaves of Money, too. Okay. And it's not to say, 
you don't, I have an effective tax rate too. I don't think I don't contribute to society because of that. But, but I'm he, just saying, but do you, do you wish, do, do you believe you should have an effective zero rate of tax? I think all humans should have an effective zero rate of tax. When okay. you define tax as non-consensual exchange, right? That's not to say you can't pay security providers fees for providing physical security or preserving private property rights, which is the entire point of government. We also throw around this term rule of law, but all rule of law grounds out in property as well. It's all about resolving conflict between humans over scarce resources. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing's based on property. The whole, the existence of the government, it exists for property, that's it. Both to preserve property rights, but then it has this paradoxical situation where it preys on your property rights to fund the preservation of property rights. So it's kind of a contradictory institution. A large contributor to the reason we evolved beyond direct visceral slavery is because of capital accumulation. That actually the more capital we accumulate as a species, the smaller portion labor becomes of the cost structure. So there's less incentive to be a slave owner in a high capital stock world. Whereas if we're reduced, if there's no capital stock and we're all cavemen, right, just trying to survive from meal to meal, that there's much more of an incentive to be um, controlling of others, let's say, coercive. I disagree. I think we I think we move beyond slavery because of the evolution of democracy and certainly liberal democracies and the evolution of morality. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's based on especially in the West, the Judeo-Christian mythology, right? Inside of which democracy lives. And I'm not going to argue that, okay, um, authoritarianism is better or equal to democracy. I'm not going to make that argument necessarily, but I think the they both fall under the rubric of statism. Yeah. I don't think statism is a sustainable economic model for human beings. So we know this, for instance, we know the Austrian business cycle theory, you start to um, inflate the currency, you basically create distorted price signals, misallocation of capital, the boom and bust business cycle we're all accustomed to, right? All that's rooted into basic, basically taxation, taxation via inflation in this case. The theory that I'm working with currently is that there's, there are broader implications to that coercion and that not only do we have a business boom and bust cycle, but we have a civilizational boom and bust cycle. I agree. So long as coercion has any attack surface whatsoever, I think it's like a co coercive agent that gets into human affairs and spreads and destroys us, destroys our culture, destroys us psychologically. And I think that I'm seeing a lot of symptoms of that today. And that's what I was mentioning to you offline. I was like, I see the world driving off a cliff yeah. and I'm concerned. What if I said to you, I think there are, there are natural evolutions of the way humans coordinate. And if, if whatever you did, whatever kind of structure you put in place, if you had the big red button to get rid of the government, you know, I think you end up in one of three places. You end up in a, in a democracy. You end up authoritarian. With, you know, give you like a Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. style. Or you end up with anarchy. But I don't believe anarchy is something like what the anarcho-capitalists hope it will be. I think it's something like Somalia. I disagree. So again, back to the term. But, but, but we have, what, 200 countries in the world? We've never had a natural evolution to the anarcho-capitalist world that the anarcho-capitalists want. Now, 
I understand they say, no, we've not had the tools and now we have Bitcoin, we can have that. I, I don't see Bitcoin delivering what they want. I do. Um, again, the word anarchy, mm -hmm. very bad connotation. People think anarchy literally means people running around, killing each other, eating each other. Whatever. They think it's G7, G8 meetings with people in black outfits smashing McDonald's up. That's right. Okay. <laughs> it means an archon, so no ruler, basically. So it's rules, not rulers, as we often say in Bitcoin. People can mutually agree to rules, right? There's a million examples of this, but that's fine. That's how we organize ourselves. And so long as people have the right to say no and say, this rule set doesn't work for me. I couldn't negotiate terms, but I can go over to this jurisdiction and, and solve it that way. I think that's the way we sort ourselves out. But to say that we, it's not possible, I would agree with the Bitcoiners that we've not had the tools in place because what do we always have? We have human beings attempting to get something for nothing. The easiest path to that, if you're the monopolist on violence, is to monopolize the money. So we've had always the state monopolizing the money. That leads to the business cycle, boom and bust business cycle, misallocation of capital. I would also say the bust of like ancient Rome, right? They debase the currency, the civilization collapses. So we've been sawing off the very branch on which we've been building civilization time and time and time again. I agree. And the trick has been, how do we bootstrap ourselves out of this? And it seems like the only way we've been able to do that so far is with technology. But by technology, I don't just mean tangible technology. I mean, these social technologies we're talking about as well, which I would put democracy in there. Democracy is an improvement, right? Than just uh, the big guy model of communism. There's this great, there's this book, The Discovery of Freedom, written by Rose. And she talks about basically every mode of human organization being communism until we got to democracy. So it's just like you lived in a little, I toured this Hawaiian village when I was there um, a few months ago. And there's different houses, you know, this is where the women made the food. This is where the guys ate the food. This is where they had recreation. And then you go to the, the big guy's house, the guy with the big stick. And he's in like the nicest house. And, you know, he's, he's the government, basically. He's the local little monopolist on violence in this village of 100 people or whatever it was. So he was the state. And essentially, that's how humans organize themselves everywhere, right? We, we are primates. We do organize ourselves in these hierarchies. But that doesn't mean that's, that's very animalistic, right? We've sort of scaled out of that going into democracy now. We have this 330 million people nation state in the U.S. Um, it was able to achieve... We were able to achieve economic abundance through life, liberty, property, like respecting these, these deep principles of Western civilization that are built on top of Christianity, I would argue. You, you believe that's how the U.S. became the dominant? I don't see how you argue it any other way because you know what violating property rights to 100% does. Yeah, we just course, describe yeah. that. You're a slave. There's no accumulation of wealth. There's no upward social mobility whatsoever. So what is the opposite of that? If you have perfected private property rights and you everything that you work to produce and create value in the world, you get to keep and trade it with other self-owned people. That's how we increase the division of labor and wealth in the world. That's why the United States is the greatest experiment uh, in socioeconomics in history. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by sportsbet.io. 
the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also, today we have Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full-suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Okay, we're going to have to dig into that. What what do you mean by greatest? Because richest, uh, richest, but it doesn't make it the greatest. I, I think wealth is the best problem solver in the world. How much of the the U.S. global wealth has been attained by enslaving other nations, interfering in uh, uh, the politics of other nations, destabilizing other nations, going to war with other nations, coercing uh, coercing Probably other nations? Probably a lot. Yeah. And so also, so it's yeah. kind of hypocritical. 
because well, because it's foundationally it's, though. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is you 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 have to look at it all. You basically it's, but everything well, you're against. Yeah, but, no, no, but every, every useful fiction. Everything you've said that you're against, you've now said this is what may, has made the U.S. the greatest. But they've done that to the cost of uh, multiple regions around the world. Certainly, the Middle East, definitely South America. You know, they, they've essentially created slave countries. Mm-hmm. They've coerced countries through the dollar he- hegemony. I always mm-hmm. struggle to say that. I'm a bloody stutter. Um, so I think there's a hypocrisy in that. Well, I agree with you that, again, we're back into this useful fiction territory. When I say the United States was the greatest economic success story in human history, I'm talking about foundational United States, right? We get our independence from England. We have low and predictable taxes. We have hard money. We have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of life, liberty, and property in North America yep. for the period following the Revolutionary War up until the 20th century, until the implementation of the central bank. 1913, we get the Fed, everything goes to shit. Yeah, we become a global imperialist. It's a complete disaster. So back to the useful fiction things, like when I say that about the United States, I'm meaning the United States in one sense of the word, and then you're taking me across the line of the Fed and saying, well, no, you're a hypocrite. So you've basically, your scope is this big on the United States, and mine's looking at this. But, so you can see where the confusion comes into well, play no, but, here. But, but even if you look at the, the history of the United States, the, the birth of the United States was built on the coercion and death and uh, destruction of Native Americans. That's right. And African Americans. Yeah. Yeah. And all of this, and I wrote about this too, it's like when you, you know, the African slave trade was started following the uh, agri beads thing, the slave beads. I don't, I don't they were know. Using the gla- they were using glass beads as money in Africa. Yeah. And basically, once Europeans figured this out, they counterfeited the shit out of the glass beads and started buying all their wealth. I think I've heard this, yeah. And then this led to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, 12 and a half million people shuttled through the transatlantic slave trade over a 365 year period. Wow. Uh, I think. 12 and a half million survived, 2 million died. So maybe it was like 15 million total affected. It came out, it was a 365 year affair. When you'd ran the numbers on it, if you assume a slave works 5,000 hours per year, it comes out to like 7 billion human hours of labor stolen per year for 365 years straight. Prior to the Fed. Oh yeah, this is all transatlantic, but, but here's the point, okay? So seven, let's call it 7 billion hours stolen per year. Direct, visceral, whips and chains, slavery. How much has the Fed stolen per year in terms of human hours from 1980 to 2020? Probably a lot more. 24 billion hours per year. And you take this expansion of the M2 money supply divided by the average hourly rate, you get a proxy for hours stolen. The point is this, that I, did, the Fed did, can do it at a much larger scale because it's less visible and less understood. Of, of, of course, but there's two things. Firstly, have you accounted for population size with those numbers? It's not about population size, though. Well, it's just it's, hours stolen. But isn't it, isn't it, isn't it hours stolen per, per man? Wouldn't it be better to at least have a like-for-like comparison? Um, I'm looking at absolute hours stolen. You could do it as a percentage of population, I well, suppose. Uh, it, for me, that would be a more useful number. Um, but also, it's a it's a completely different form of slavery. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you if you if you consider it partial slavery, yes, the Fed has stolen these hours, but you get to live in a, fr- a fairly free, so- mm-hmm. safe society. It's not 
a, a racially segregated, abusive, whips, chains, and murder society. Mm -hmm. So the, the, they are two different things. So it's progress. I mean, one of the things that I think democracy has brought us, and certainly Western liberal democracies, is is it's brought a, fair, a, a certain fairness to the world in certain places, mm -hmm. and it's brought a better treatment of human beings in certain places. Mm -hmm. Everything has nuance, everything has gray mm -hmm. areas. But I, I make this joke with Danny, it's like, I laugh at, I find Swedish libertarians hilarious because they live in one of the <laughs> safest, best places in the world and they want to burn that shit down mm -hmm. and they want to, they want anarchy. Uh, and I just think that's a really fucking weird take to have where you've built probably one of the best, safest places in the world to live. And we know what happens when you have a breakdown in uh, society. We know what happens uh, in places of lawlessness. Mm -hmm. The weak get crushed. Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the weak get discriminated against. Why would you want to burn that shit down? So let's just try to look at it this way. And this is the grand arc of human history in a way. If you go from ancient Egypt, uh -huh. right, you get two or three dudes that are sovereign. Everyone else is basically a slave, more or less. Now, there's some gray area there, sure, but most people don't have strong property rights. They're not able to build businesses, create wealth, add value, add to the division of labor, increase global capital stock. Again, the more stuff we have, the easier life is, the less we have to fight over. All of this is based in strong property. And that's why I think the United States was the best economic experiment we had in that regard so far. I would argue that Bitcoin is another order of magnitude leap um, in that direction. That is, it's progress, right? So to so say we're in a democracy now, and then yes, it's improved things in the world. I don't, I can't disagree with that. But I ultimately think, I don't think we should just be satisfied with our progress. So no, oh, we're done here. Democracy, it's all, all done. No, but this is the point. Whenever I get into these discussions, I don't, I don't want to burn it down. I want to strengthen and improve democracy when it's weak or when it's fraying. I want to have the debate about how do we make democracy stronger and better? I think the free and actual anarcho-capitalistic free market is the ultimate democracy because you're actually voting with your dollar, buying and selling what to create. And in this hypothetical world, admittedly, where property cannot be violated against, wealth creation would be maximized. So we've, we've limited scarcity. We've limited the things to fight over. And if property can't be violated, like this is the great hope of Bitcoin, you can't take my shit, so why be violent? There's no carrot to the act of violence or, or coercion. So people, But that itself is not exactly true because even Jameson Lopp has a GitHub that lists all the people who have had their Bitcoin violated. Oh, you through absolutely the can. So you, you can, you can. But if you hold it properly, as I know you hold yours properly, it's a pretty low attack surface, right? Of course, but it doesn't get rid of it. I'm not. I'm not. By but, the way, but, but even, but even, but even with that, that's only that's the only one form of property. We don't live with a single form of property that is Bitcoin. So let's talk about what property I have. I have Bitcoin. I have my house. I have my car. I have my clothes. I have the properties within the property within my house. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you come to my house, you can't get my Bitcoin because I'm super smart and my keys are globally distributed. You can you can hold a gun to my head and make threats for other things. You can take my mm -hmm. TV, you can take my car. So it doesn't eliminate violence. It just eliminates what people can steal from. It just changes what people can steal from you. And I don't think we eliminate violence. So let me be clear. And, and, and sorry, sorry, let me add to that. Also, 
we know in every single society when people are desperate, when people are hungry, they will resort to violence, mm -hmm. right? That's this, this is why there's the big fear of, of food scarcity right now. Right. Because we are going to see revolutions, we're going to see protests. When people are desperate, they will attack. The great thing about Western liberal democracies, if we build a society that looks after the weakest, it looks after the poorest, like we do our best to try and protect them. I'm not saying this worked perfectly, but we do our best. In the UK, there are people who live in relative poverty, but people don't die of starvation mm -hmm. in the UK. And even if even if the welfare doesn't support them, we have the voluntary organization of food banks that, that do support people. Mm -hmm. Now, my travel around the world, I've been to places that has real food scarcity and doesn't have a societal structure that protects the poorest. And they are violent places. Mm -hmm. Venezuela is a violent place. People will kill you because they're desperate and they're hungry. Mm -hmm. If we have no, if we go to pure property rights, we will have people who have not been able to get on the economic ladder, but they don't have a support structure, and they will, they will enact violence upon people and they will kill people, because Bitcoin is not the only property. So there is other shit you can steal. So you can you can steal a TV to sell to to get some Bitcoin to feed your family. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't get rid of that. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Um, I I want to be clear that. People get real hung up on this, and it's like it's black or white. Does Bitcoin end war or does war continue? It's like it's not about that. It's yeah. does it reduce the incentives overall to violence, therefore limiting the scope, duration, and severity of violence in the world? That I would argue very strongly in favor of. Perhaps. Well, again, if we're talking about government's purpose being property, so we're outsourcing the defense of our property to the government. That's all we're doing, actually. We just currently don't have much leverage at the negotiating table in dealing with the pricing of that security. I think Bitcoin gives us a much more cost-effective and high-integrity assurance of our property rights than government ever can. So the only thing, so it's not absolute, yeah. I want to say. The one thing I am absolute on, where you could attack me, is that I, you know, freedom maximalism. I'm an absolutist on freedom. I think even freedom itself... The concept is self-regulating. The should is everyone should seek to maximize their own freedom, their own purchasing power, their own optionality, but they should do that within the bounds of other people's private property rights. Right. The, the, I think that creates not only the best individual outcomes, but also the best collective outcome. And by collective, I mean aggregate wealth creation for the world, which means the, the least amount of scarcity, least amount of things to fight over, and the, the smallest carrot for fighting over anything in the first place if you can't take my stuff. Now, I understand your argument. Bitcoin is not physical reality. It does not secure your property rights and tables and chairs and cars and whatnot. But the fact that you have an option and recourse to a form of wealth that should you be uh, coming into coercive circumstances, you can at least move your wealth into something like Bitcoin and be very mobile. That gives individuals a lot of optionality to reconfigure themselves in a way that protects themselves from violence. And I agree. I mean, we've seen those case studies of people who have fled Ukraine with mm -hmm. their Bitcoin, and right. that's been their escape valve. As I said at the start, I always think of, I'm always trying to look at the implications in the journey. I completely agree with you. Bitcoin changes the logic of violence. Mm -hmm. First interview ever did, I think yeah, we discussed that. We did too, yeah. But I also want to know, what does what is the net impact on the society we live in. And I know we've discussed what is society, but let's just imagine a 
Bitcoin society in the UK within the it's easy to do because we're an island, a little mm -hmm. tiny island, and it's a breakdown of the state. They can't take anything, so, so we don't have a state. Yes, we've changed the logic of violence, but what has the net impact of society been? Have we moved to something which is safer or more dangerous? Have we moved to something like without structure has become more chaotic and disorganized? Have we created a different form of wealth disparity between the haves and the haves not? Have we created dangerous, you know, have we ghettoized large parts of the country? Like what, like I try and think of the net impact. I, I don't see it through rose tinted glasses. And I sometimes feel like it's a bit like SimCity. When you play SimCity, you can design the perfect world because you lay the roads where you want them, put the buildings where you want them. I just, I think it's very easy for a, for anyone to look at the society and and look at where we are now and break down all the ills and the problems. But but you can't, words, words all you can do with words is create a, a utopia. You, you don't know the reality of what's going to happen. And it might, you know what, it might fucking suck. It might be like Venezuela. And it might be like Bitcoiners in their citadels with a bunch of dude with guns patrolling and protecting them. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, it's a bunch of poor people fighting and murdering and killing each other. And basically, it might just end up like being a, like a total shithole. <laughs> well, look, and to answer your question, it's like on what time horizon? If it's over two decades, I would completely agree. Things could get very messy. This is why I always talk about the sovereign individual. It's like these transformations from one age into another, they're not fucking clean and beautiful and you just like shift into a utopia. Typically, there's a destruction, right? There's an implosion yep. of the existing structure. Chaos ensues because for whatever, even in a pure tyrannical society, there's a lot of stability inside of that hierarchy, right? There's predictability, you know, you know what this guy does and what uniform this guy is wearing, like you can kind of get on in the world. But when all that falls apart, when say the Soviet Union collapses, like people are lost, right? They're doing the 40 years in the proverbial desert. We could be going into something like that. But to blame that on Bitcoin, I think is is short-sighted. I'm not blaming it on Bitcoin. I'm not saying you are, but I'm yeah. saying I think it, that narrative will be pushed. Like, should we actually get into the situation where states, their insolvency is being uh, realized, let's say? They've been able to um, kick the can on insolvency through inflation, through taxation, all of these methods. Bitcoin becomes like this forcing function of honesty on all businesses, all individuals. Mm -hmm. The state's the most insolvent upside down business in the world so to see it start to crack up in the emergence of bitcoin i think people will assign blame on the bitcoin somewhat rightfully so right it's like yeah you gave people an alternative to a stronger more cost-effective property right it's bankrupting the existing business of property rights and in that transformation yeah things are going to get messy potentially like no one knows by the way so i'm not i'm not saying what i have to say about it as gospel and indeed what i said to you earlier it's like i'm I'm disheartened. I've see, I see the pollution of our money, like the debasement of our money is like the debasement of our psychology, the debasement of our culture. So I think we're gonna go through this whole painful stage of like realizing how much bullshit we actually live in before we start to hopefully hit a rock bottom and rebuild um, a society that's premised more on volition, like mutual voluntary exchange rather than coercion. I think the coercion itself is again, this like dissolving agent in human affairs, um, perpetrating the business cycle and perpetrating my theoretical um, boom and bust cycle. Yeah, there's one other thing here that 
I'm going to talk to Tira Demeester about this. Oh, we're talking to him as well. He's got a great paper that he wrote like in 2010. And he described when you inflate the currency supply, you're actually creating more imaginary goods. So it's like, it's an actual lie, right? You're deceiving people into believing there's more stuff in the world. So that's what creates that euphoric, you know, roaring 20s style economic boom, but that always ends up in a catastrophic hangover. You should talk to um, Jeff Booth about that as well, because he talks about that in, uh, uh, with regards to like money misinformation. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that, the thesis roughly is that it is a deception. It's an actual deception baked into this technology we use in our minds called money. And I think there are psychological implications of corrupting or debasing that money on us that we ourselves don't quite understand yet. And I get this from, just go read about hyperinflations. There's a book. Dude, I've read My Money Dies. So you know. I know. I think we just, as a species, discount how severely the technologies we use impact and shape who we are. Because that's ultimately what we're talking about here, right? It's a transformation in technology transforming us. I I, I consider hyperinflation as, as like war. It's as destructive as war. It's a psychological breakdown too, though, because you lose yeah. your grip with reality. If there's hyperinflation, like how imagine how much anxiety is induced by that? All of a sudden, your scope of human cooperation goes from eight billion people when the currency is functional. It contracts to like your family, dude. I, you can't I, trust anybody. I, 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 I'm, I'm literally with you on that. You know, we have a, a very similar job, and we have contracts with sponsors, right? Mm-hmm. I'm discussing multi-year sponsorship contracts. And I'm now adding inflation clauses in there in preparation wow. for yeah. this. So I'm preparing for the, the, the radical repricing mm-hmm. of goods and services that affect my life. Mm-hmm. That is my version of going around the supermarket and repricing things. Mm-hmm. A very limited version of that. But it's, it is that consideration in that, <clears throat> I mean, we're at whatever, 7% inflation, which is really probably 15%. Mm-hmm. But if I price a three-year contract and we suddenly have 15% inflation, I fucked myself. Absolutely. So I get it. I'm like yeah. all this stuff, by the way, I'm with you. You know, some people I, listen and then and they will be like, um, they they might think I disagree with you or think I want to keep the status quo. I I am with you. I'm purely interested in the implications. Let, let me throw on one other thing here. So this is back to that the dirty word fiat that I think is like actual evil. Like it's a really really bad thing in the world. We need to try to deal with. But a lot of people think it's just oh, it's this weird form of money that you lose purchasing power if they know what it means at all. Most people don't know what the term means at all. Well, define it. Do this because I said so rather than because you want to. And behind that is a veiled threat of force always. Like do this or else, right? So hold on. Is is fear evil or is is the person who controls it evil? Well, I think it's fear-based ultimately. So the individual um, speaking the fiat over another, they're scared that the world, this person will do something adverse to their interest. So therefore they're using force over them, right? And then the, the person complying with fiat is also doing it out of fear. It's like, well, if I don't do this, they're going to put me in jail or, you know, hurt me. So there's, it's, a, it's a fear integrated into human relationships that I think is a problem. And this gets into more of the kind of, you know, we need, what did, what did Jimi Hendrix say about the, the love of power and the power of love? When the power of love conquers the love of power, we would know peace, something like that. There's this trade-off where you can make decisions out of fear or love. 
And I think when property is viable, you're much more likely to behave according to fiat, which is a fear-based mentality. I just want to say one other thing here. So I would say my, my, my fear of the threat of not paying tax is probably much lower than the fear of a slave on a plantation. Well, here's where I want to make the equation is that it's one thing to say, all right, fiat currency is something that debases your purchasing power. But you know what else I can do to debase your purchasing power? I can cut off your left arm. You're not going to have as much earnings potential probably for the rest of your life. Or I could cut off your leg, right? You could do something very violent and terrible to someone that would hurt their purchasing power, hurt their economic interests, hurt their ability to survive in the world going forward. Or I can do it in a less visible way and do it to a much larger group of people slowly over time. It accomplishes the same effect, right? I'm reducing people's purchasing power. I'm confiscating their wealth. I'm violating their property in a less bloody, less violent way, but it's the same thing. You are stealing people's life energy, whether you're perpetrating actual physical violence or you're just confiscating their purchasing power. Okay, let's let's work through the reality of the world you want to see because I think that's always really useful to do. Okay, you detest this fiat world, you detest the way the coercion that comes from the monopoly and violence that government has, you see an alternative world. Okay, T talk me through it. Talk, talk me through what we have. Because this is, this is where I always struggle because I think it's very easy to criticize from the outside and it's very easy to write a thesis on what you would mm -hmm. like to see. But I often find the thesis ignores the reality of the way humans are. I don't know that it's entirely what I would like to see so much as I'm trying to just identify what is likely to happen. Okay. So I'm not trying to paint some utopian picture and saying this is what we should do. But 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 I think when we see what's going to happen, we we have a position and then we perhaps fight for it. So right. for example, <clears throat> if if we were to see what would be to happen and 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 think that would be a, a net negative for everyone, we would fight against that. Like I, I am an ardent supporter of democracy because I believe despite its flaws, it's the best we have because everywhere else in the world that doesn't have democracy is, again, arguable, <laughs> but arguably worse. Mm -hmm. I would rather be living in the UK than in Russia. Right. Uh, some people say they'd rather live in Saudi Arabia than the UK. <laughs> I understand that, yeah. but uh, I would rather be living where we are now. And if, if I felt like we were going to trend towards a full breakdown of democracy in the UK, and I thought, feel that that would be a worse outcome, I would fight to strengthen democracy. So that I know what I want, and I would push towards that. So, again, with a caveat that this is not what I would like to see the world do, I'm trying to make an honest, objective assessment about where I think it could go okay. based on what I've studied. I'm not here to should people like you should do this, you should do that. Other than I think freedom, I guess I do should about freedom, life, liberty, property. I think that's a should. We should but, but, well, let's do that. Let's, let's get, actually let's well, do that. Let me, so let's talk about this democracy. Okay. The book "Democracy: The God That Felled" by Hoppe. Yep. I don't know if you've read it read yet. It. You, introduction in chapter one. So he lays out all the shortcomings of democracy. I think the world, as a result of Bitcoin emerging, would move back towards a model more like that. And when you say monarchy, you're like, what are you talking about? That's a regression. It sounds terrible. I encourage people, just go read Introduction and Chapter 1 to this book, where you have smaller economic enclaves and local monopolists on violence 
that preserve private property rights, physical private property rights, for a fee, right? Well, but sorry, what's the closest we have to that? Would you say Saudi Arabia is essentially a monarchy? I don't think we have anything like that in the world today because it's all fiat. Where is fiat not in the world today? Where is sound money? Uh, even if Saudi Arabia had fiat, sound money, they also have a monopoly on the resources to accumulate wealth. But people don't have the veto power that Bitcoin gives them over their government. And that's the point I'm getting to is, so in this world where you go, and this is the sovereign individual thesis. Yeah, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Having, having sovereignty over your money does not mean there aren't individuals who can monopolize the accumulation of wealth and, and as such then uh, oppress groups. It does prevent the monopolization of the accumulation of wealth to a large extent, I think. How? Because if because, you, because you, tra- you, you would be trading Bitcoin for, for goods and services, and if you have a monopoly over the natural resources of a large territory, you can monopolize the accumulation of wealth. Yeah, and so if wealth they, comes power. If, they can't, if an individual can't make money in a certain regime and they have access to Bitcoin, they leave the regime. They go somewhere where they can make money. But, but So it puts a check on government, right? That's a reduction to the tax base for Saudi Arabia, so all of a sudden they have an incentive to start treating their citizens better. But hold on, did they even have it? Did they even have tax in Saudi Arabia? I don't know. I'll have a look. I know certainly people go to Dubai because it's tax-free. I'm pretty sure. Because, uh, because, they, because they accumulate so much wealth from the natural resources. No, no income tax. Yeah, no income tax. So again, I'm not talking about anything in fiat world today. Okay. I'm talking about a world where Bitcoin is money, yeah. Right. All other property rights would need to be enforced by some physical provider. I think that results in much smaller scale and scope of government. Government shrinks tremendously. Um, violence as a whole actually would be less of a thing you need to insure against for all the reasons we've talked about. It still exists, right? They can still come and take your house and car and all that. But I think it becomes a localized protection service versus this 330 million person nation state we have today and it's all about customer optionality in the end right if you have the ability to convert your wealth into something and go elsewhere and it's a it's an option that no one can suspend or stop then that forces you to deal with your customers more honestly like this is the nature of free market capitalism right this is what competition is competition is this discovery process like what do people want let me give it to them at a price at a competitive price and competition keeps you honest. If some other entrant can come into the market and introduce a service better, faster or cheaper than you, then you're out of business. But the problem with government, it's been this paradox that we need to outsource the integrity of our property rights to something that it has to be preserved. But then that very institution preys on the property rights it's charged to preserve to fund itself. I mean, it's, it doesn't work, right? And we've seen, you, you know it empirically looking across history, no state ever works. It either gets conquered or it fails. Why? Why can't we figure out a sustainable way to organize ourselves? My, my, the thing is, and this is hard to talk about because we live in it. It's everywhere. Fiat statism is ubiquitous. It's all around us. Uh-huh. What I'm talking about is something hypothetical, right? It's something I think we can evolve towards. And that's the vision I guess I'm trying to lay out. It's like a non-coercive global society. I, I, you, you will still have coercion. Less society. coercive. When I say non-coercive, I'm speaking idealistically. I don't think coercion completely goes away, but you tweak the incentives, 
you create, you tweak the outcomes. I just, I just don't think you escape the concentrations of wealth, and with the concentrations of wealth comes concentrations of power, and and those people will continue to coerce to accumulate more wealth and more power. I think you've completely. I think one of the things is you miss out the the human component of so greed and violence. Use this imaginary construction, which is something that Mises uses a lot in Human Action. Okay. Imaginary world, everyone's invulnerable, and you can't steal from each other. What would we do to increase wealth in that world? You can't hurt me. You can't steal my stuff. Um, you would you would uh, invent things and build things and trade. Exactly. So if we reduce the attack surface on you being able to hurt me or you being able to steal my stuff, which you being able to hurt me is typically incentivized by you being able to steal my stuff because hurting someone's a very risky, expensive endeavor, whether it's done individually or at scale in warfare, yeah. then you shift us closer towards that world where we just make stuff, add value, and trade. True. You shift us towards that. But what is the... Uh, it, 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 I mean, we're going to go around in circles, so I'll avoid this too much. We still don't know what the net impact, and, and, and we can't visualize what that society looks like. We don't know what it does for the vulnerable in society. We know we're way wealthier. If you increase aggregate wealth, then you've benefited the poor in society. That's, that's not necessarily true. Absolutely true. If you increase aggregate wealth, we have more capital stocks, we have better health care, we have more food, we have more infrastructure. So who, who, I we mean, can satisfy human wants more cheaply. Okay, so you would say the the U.S. has was it's been the greatest economic story. It, pre-fed, pre-fed, pre-fed. Okay, uh, it's still been a great economic story since, if you purely measure on GDP. But in terms of the health system, it's a fucking car crash. Yeah, and now I know lots of different Post ways you can break that down. But but the trick is like we're it's so hard to talk about because yeah. we're living inside of it, right? This is the old what is the fish and water analogy where two fish swim by each other and it's like, hey, how's the water, boys? And he looks over at the other fish. What the hell is water? Yeah, like we're swimming in it, so we can't even. It's hard to you need to step out of it to think about it. And but I we're, think, we're also living through the bust, and therefore people are pissed off and they want to like they want to find something to blame and criticize. Yeah. But we, why are people pissed off? I mean, range of range of reasons. The world's pretty fucked up right now. One main reason: rampant property right violations via I, inflation and otherwise. I think if you asked a hundred people that question, maybe one would say that. I'm not saying they cognitively understand it. Hmm. There's like a procedural knowing. Like you can know you're getting fucked and feel anxiety about a situation without knowing cognitively, being able to describe propositionally what it is. And that's what I'm saying. It's like coercion and property right violations embedded in our socioeconomic reality are fucking us up from the inside out. And that's what I hope to work against and paint a vision of a better world away from. That's, um, this, by the way, this is fucking great. Like I love I to agree. work through these things because yeah. uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of groupthink that exists right now. I think mm -hmm. there's groupthink uh, around statism and I think there's a groupthink around... Uh, uh, Bitcoin, and I think people see opinion leaders, and they hear them say something, and they're like, "Oh fuck, well, I believe in that." Uh, I've discovered Bitcoin. Oh, now I'm now I'm going to be a carnivore, or now now I'm Christian. Like, there's a yes. lot of group thing that happens, and I think the most important thing is to always challenge it, to fully understand it, mm -hmm. right? And when I challenge you, it's not to defend my position; it's to understand yours more. And I think I, a lot of people yeah. miss that, and that it's it's, it's the reason. And I'm trying to understand my own more too. Yeah. Because I don't. Again, I'm not preaching gospel here. I'm just. It's why it's why I've like come off Twitter. 
is because group think, I think, is, is, is another thing that's corrosive. Yeah, and I think there's a relationship there. Maybe I'm just uh, myopic on some of this, but again, if you increase scarcity in the world, people are going to regress towards their tribalist roots, right? You uh -huh. want to go back towards baser level human instincts versus if you're creating more wealth and abundance in the world, they're just you, you become more autonomous. You don't need the security of the group as much. So again, if we talked about humanity like emerging in all these communist little enclaves, and then we eventually got to democracy, and now we're looking at something that's potentially post-statism, uh, coercion minimized, not coercion free. Um, <laughs> that is something I think that's very beautiful to work towards, right? Let me ask you something, something I've been uh, looking at recently and trying to get my head around. Have you, um, have you read Isaiah Berlin's theories on uh, liberty, like negative or positive liberty? No. See, that's, that's an area I want to get into and understand a bit more about and, and the debate around it. Be good, good maybe if you could have a read for next time we talk. And right. I'd love to get your views on this, and I'm, I'm gonna, I might get these the wrong way around, but uh, negative liberty is freedom from uh freedom from freedom to freedom and then uh yeah freedom to yeah I, my assumption is you're you're a freedom from because that's coercion well whereas i'm i'm a freedom to which is freedom to it to it to have the say to have an opportunity well i think they're related so yeah again back to that hypothetical example of you can't hurt me you can't steal from me property is inviolable that's freedom from yeah right i'm freedom i'm free from all your opinions you can't hurt me you can't steal from me i'm going to do whatever i want if we're going to engage it'll be mutual and voluntary because i can't hurt you and steal from you you can't hurt me or steal from me so we'll come together voluntarily and we'll create value this is a key point too you only do a mutual voluntary trade when you think it's valuable and the other guy thinks it's valuable so there's mutual value creation so freedom from strong property, freedom to is optionality. That's wealth creation. That's capital stocks. The stronger your freedom to, the more abundant your freedom. I'm sorry, the stronger your freedom from, the more abundant your freedom to. Well, that's where I think it gets a bit difficult because I think freedom from is, is completely, it's, it's like absolute liberty. It's no coercion. It's what you're talking about. Mm. But freedom to requires, I think, rules to create a more equitable opportunity. That's fine, as long as they're consensual. Yeah, but but then you can't have freedom too, because freedom too requ requires rules. But rules can be consensual. Like we drive on the right-hand side of the road here, consensually, right? No, I think it's more like, uh, what was it? The, um, it, it, it was like that guy said, uh, a, a man is born, no, I, a man is born free but I have chains around me everywhere I go. Oh, this is Rousseau. Yeah, Rousseau, Man is born yeah. free, but everywhere is in chains. Yeah. That's bullshit, though, because we're born into the realities of biological scarcity. No, but th that, that came from, like, post-slavery, where uh, freedom was given to, to the slaves, but they had nothing. No, I think anywhere you look where there's been low, predictable taxes, strong and reliable rule of law, and strong property rights, you've seen wealth be created. Um, when, a, when, when in recent time? So there's a, there's a period in Hong Kong, and I don't know the exact year, but um, there's a regime change, and I wish I was more prepared for this. Yeah, don't worry about a it. A guy came I in. I love this, by the way. And it, there were no, he, he was much more of the Austrian bent, that he didn't want to measure the economy. He wanted to give basically low and predictable taxes, clear rules, 
let people self-organize. And there was a huge economic boom. Uh, I think if you just look up the economic boom in Hong Kong, okay. you could corroborate this. But this is like this is where I, I want to go to. It's like I support smaller government. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a regulations person, but I want less regulation. I want mm -hmm. smaller government, lower taxes. I don't want no government, don't, no taxes. If, if anything, it's like uh, I edge towards minicism. Yeah, I again, the word tax is loaded because people think, well, you have to pay for the roads, you have to pay for security. I agree on all of that. I just think it needs to be consensual. And taxation is defined as non-consensual, essentially. All right. Anything we'd, you want to cover that we've not? <laughs> this, this, I mean, this has been super challenging for me. I need, I, there's stuff I need to go away and read and uh, read up on. Um, yeah, and it's challenging for me too. And I, you know, engage with me. Like, I just don't think this works. The statism model works. And I think we've got a lot of history to prove that out. So it's like, can we do better? I would like to challenge human beings to try and do better. Uh, I think there's been a lot of theoretical groundwork laid by the Austrian school. Yeah. We've never even really acknowledged that hardly as, you know, as a collective. Dude, I studied economics. They didn't. We never study Austrian economics. No. We 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 had we had a whole uh, we had a whole we, we call it a term, but it's a semester. Yeah, on Keynesian, like it right. was indoctrinated into us. Like like this Same is here. yeah. No, um, I mean for me, this, this is where I see the role of Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin doesn't eliminate the nation state; it improves the nation state. Mm. It minimizes it and it makes it better, and it makes it more accountable and reliable. It minimizes taxes. It minimizes laws. Mm -hmm. That's where I see it. I don't see it eliminates it all. I agree with you. I guess we just get um, on the specifics. You know, I don't, and I don't know the specifics. I yeah. just think that coercion in general could be minimized in a Bitcoin world. And I think also our attitudes about coercion. Like there seems to me, like especially with people that are say social justice inclined. They think the only solution to the problems of the world is to go and co coerce somebody. Like, you know, hire more people of this color or do more of this, you know, carbon tax credits or what. Like, it's always coercion. It's stick to solve everything. I think carrots are just much more effective. So we have to create the proper carrots for the world. And also, there's, um, you know, Balaji's writing a book on this, The yeah. Network State. Yeah. I so can't wait to get that. I'm excited to read that. Yeah. Um, it's definitely going to take some imagination because we've never had an incorruptible monetary base layer, right? Money's always been kind of a tool of state power, and now we're moving into a world where that's potentially not true any longer. So one other thing I do want to talk about is my live event in Miami. Oh, shit, yeah. Um, right, I want to come. When is it? April 8th, 7.30 to 9 p.m. We're going to have a little cocktail event prior and a cocktail event after. It's live episode of the What Is Money show in front of a live studio audience. Mm -hmm. First time we've ever done it. Surprise guest who I'm super excited about. Can't even talk about because I'm so excited about I, it. I think I know it. I think it's one of two people. I'm, can I, am I allowed to guess? Of course. I, I think, personally, I think it's Jordan Peterson. I think it is. Uh, and if it is, I'm definitely coming. But I know you're not going to tell me because I've already asked you. Uh, what's that line in the Avengers? I can neither confirm nor deny all right. anything that's been said here. I think I have to try to be that. Uh, all right, that's fair. Uh, how do people get tickets for that? Uh, it's online. You could. There's a link in my Twitter bio. There's an Eventbrite page right there. Um, there's three kinds of tickets if you want to do the pre-event, the post-event. Um, 
it should be fun. You know, we're going to talk about some really deep and meaningful topics, hopefully more stuff like this, trying to visualize what the world looks like post Bitcoin and the why of Bitcoin. You know, like people, everyone can sense there's something wrong in the world today. Again, I think a lot of it's rooted in property. People don't see that yet. I hope Bitcoin helps. You know what I'm thinking they're going to say, don't you? No, I don't. This show's going to go out. This is scheduled to go out after that event. Oh, yeah, but we'll put it out early. All right. We can do it. All right, cool. I appreciate that. Listen, brother, you know I love you. I appreciate you, everything you do. Um, I wish we did. I wish we could do this more often. I mean, all ours are in person now, uh, apart from the occasional in Auden. So we just have to schedule these better and find a way to do it. Beautiful. Uh, Likewise, love you, man, and thanks for having me. Anytime. And um, I love trying to sharpen the sword on these conversations. So appreciate it. All right, man. Peace. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.